Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Let's go. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, a pack pod tonight. Johnny Gomes is going to join us in a little bit. We'll get into some of the issues with this current Red Sox team. But since this has been such a shitty season for the Red Sox, I want to go down memory lane a little bit, get into that 13 team, which was such a unique team. Nobody thought that was an unbelievable team, not like 18 or 04 or 07. So we'll get into that squad with Johnny Gomes because that obviously has a special place in the history of the city in terms of the unique runs that we've ever seen to a championship. And also, I want to get to this. I have the top 10 most aggravating Boston sports storylines since the start of 2017 because that's when things kind of got weird around here. Now, they did win some championships, the Patriots in 18, the Red Sox in 18, but we had some really bizarre and strange storylines during that time, so I do want to get to that at the end here. But where I want to start is the Patriots, and... We're now less than a week and a half away from the start of the season, that game against the Dolphins in week one. So big concerns so far have been, of course, the play calling. That's been really the headline all training camp long, all the way back to the offseason. Joe Judge, Matt Patricia, et cetera. And now over the past couple of weeks, the offensive line and the system, we've been talking about the changes schematically. And of course, the O-line has not been what everybody thought. But there's one other big thing here. And... The biggest problem and the biggest disappointment of training camp doesn't have anything to do with the play calling or the offensive line. It's Kendrick Bourne. He needed to emerge as the team's best receiver, and he's not even a starter right now. He went in the wrong direction, right? Jacoby Myers being this team's number one receiver again is just a bad place for the team to be. So I wanted to do a full metric man breakdown on this thing because I usually do it for the Red Sox, but I wanted to do a deep dive into why Jacoby Myers shouldn't be this team's number one option. So here's the issue with Myers as the top target. There is no upside in terms of big play ability, and he's not really an efficient player. And I'll get into that in greater detail in a second here. So what I did is I took the top receiver from every team of the NFL this past season. So in yards, leading receiver for each team 
in the league. It sounds a little bit laborious, but I basically picked out three categories. Yards per reception, yak per reception, so yards after the catch per reception, and rating when targeted. So, And the reason I choose those three, pretty simple. So if you're getting down the field, your numbers are going to be good in terms of yards per reception. And if you can't do that, well, can you at least do something after the catch? That would be yak. And then I used rating essentially just to measure how quarterback friendly the player is and how efficient he is. So Jacoby Myers last season, the Patriots leading receiver in those three categories, 10.4 yards per reception. That was 92nd out of 127 qualified receivers or tight ends. 2.7 yak per reception. That was 117th and an 81 rating, which was 86. So none of those numbers are good. And by the way, 83 receptions on 129 targets, that's just 65.9%. That's not good either. So he's not a big play threat. He doesn't give you anything after the catch. And the rating is rubbish, right? So to put that into context, there wasn't one team's leading receiver last season that Myers was better than in all three statistical categories that I alluded to there. Yak per reception, yards per reception, and rating. So to get into this individually, yards per reception last season, He was better than just three teams' leading receivers. That was St. Brown of the Lions, Renfro of the Raiders, and Waddle of the Miami Dolphins. Now, Myers is at 10.4, as we alluded to. St. Brown, 10.1. Renfro, 10.1. And Waddle, 9.8 in terms of yards per reception. All three of those guys, by the way, better in yak and rating. St. Brown, 4.7 yak compared to Myers, 2.7. Renfro, 4.4. Waddle at 4.2. And there's a reason that these guys are behind Myers. Tua was 25th in passing yards in terms of yards per attempt last season at 6.8. Goff was 27th at 6.6. So that's why St. Brown and Waddle are down on this list. And Mack was 14th at 7.3. So Jacoby Myers should be ahead of those guys, right? And by the way, the thing with Renfro is he's just a way more efficient player. 120.6 rating when targeted compared to Myers at 81. That's almost a 40-point gap in terms of that. And by the way, the catch percentage, Renfro 80.5 compared to Myers at 65.9. So if you just look at that, Renfro is the definition of an efficient slot receiver, right? High catch percentage, quarterback rating is high, or rating when targeted is high. And Myers is the opposite of that. So he's 29th in yards per reception amongst teams leading receivers. So not good. Yak, if you look at it, only two teams leading receivers were worse than Myers in that. Sutton of the Broncos and The reason for that is Sutton was not supposed to be that team's leading receiver, right? I mean, you think about the Broncos, Jerry Judy missed seven games, not to mention the fact that his quarterbacks were Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke. And the other guy is Marvin Jones, who played for that awful Jaguars team last season. So those are the two guys that were worse than Jacoby Myers and Yak. Myers is at 2.7. And even with the Jacksonville situation, that organization has acknowledged that Marvin Jones clearly isn't a number one receiver. Now, You can make fun of the Christian Kirk contract because it's a bad contract, but they're saying this is our number one receiver. The Patriots still have Myers right now as their number one receiver, even though the numbers are not particularly good. So he was 30th in Yak among teams leading receivers. Then you look at rating. The guys that are worse than him, there's five of them. Sutton, who we just mentioned, his situation was bad. Elijah Moore, his situation was Zach Wilson, Mike White, and Joe Flacco. So obviously that's not a good situation. Then you look at Darnell Mooney of the Bears. His situation was Justin Fields, Andy Dalton, and one of the worst teams of the NFL. And then you look at DJ Moore. His situation was brutal. Think about the quarterbacks he played with last year. Sam Darnold, Cam Newton, and P.J. Walker. 
And then the other guy that w- was behind him in terms of rating was Pitts, who was at 15.1 yards per reception, though. But the rating was at 76.6, worse than Myers at 81. But Pitts, it's a situation, bad team. Matt Ryan, yeah, good quarterback. But still, he's 27th in rating amongst teams' leading receivers. So 29th in yards per reception, 30th in yak, and 27th in rating. And just one thing about that rating being 81 when Myers is targeted. Mac Jones finished 21 with a 92.5 rating. So when he targeted Myers, he was 11.5 points below his mark on the year. That's horrible, right? For your team's best receiver, essentially, by the numbers. So I won't even compare Myers to some of the elite players in the sport, right? But let's say a guy like Mike Williams, who's not a top five receiver, you could argue for top 10, definitely top 15. He was 12th in yards last year. Rating was 108.2 when he was targeted. Herbert was at 97.7 on the season. So that's a 10.5 jump when Mike Williams is targeted. Compared to Myers, it goes down by 11.5 points. Then you look at, say, Brandon Cooks, who we all remember, 22nd in receiving yards last year. So nowhere near an elite player. A really good player, by the way. I still don't understand why he's only with the Patriots for one year. But nonetheless, 99.7 rating when targeted. Davis Mills on the season at 88.8. So a 10.9% increase or a 10.9 point increase, if you will. Again, Myers down 11.5. So the number one option is supposed to make your quarterback better. Jacoby Myers is the number one option. Basically makes Mac Jones a less efficient passer. Those are facts. That's not an opinion. He makes Mac Jones less efficient when Mac is throwing the ball to him. So that's why this Kendrick Bourne shitty training camp is such a problem. And I don't understand why it's not getting more attention. If Jacoby Myers is going to be targeted the most on the Patriots, the offense has major issues. There's no way around it. Just look at this, for example. So born in the slot last year, 19 receptions on 22 targets. That's 86.4%. Myers, 56 receptions on 82 targets, 68.3% compared to born 86.4. When targeted, 136.7 rating for born in the slot. Myers, 79 Bourne had three touchdowns on 19 receptions in the slot. Myers is at just two. So Myers isn't even a dangerous player in the slot, his traditional position. He's essentially what he is, is the equivalent of an innings eater in baseball. So because no one else emerged, and in particular Kendrick Bourne, what I fear is that Mac Jones is going to rely too heavily on Jacoby Myers, which is going to lead to basically what you don't want from the Patriots. It's not going to be a potent offense. And it's not going to be a dangerous offense. So really what they need to hope for right now, the Patriots, because right now Bourne is not scheduled to be a starter. They got to hope he wakes the fuck up because they need that guy if this offense is going to be dangerous at all. You look at it last year. I mean, some of the outlying numbers with Bourne were really good. 78.6% in terms of the catch percentage. That was third in the NFL, third in the entire league and 7.1 yak, which was seventh compared to Myers who was 117th at 2.7 yak perception. So they really have got to find a way to get Kendrick Bourne going. It's just unfortunate because I don't know about you, but I really felt that Kendrick Bourne was going to have this breakout season. And it just appears the training camp was so bad for Bourne that that just doesn't seem feasible at this particular point in time that he can emerge as the number one guy. And quite frankly, that's one of the things that I was banking on entering the season. So I do want to get to our greatest Boston bet of the week, and that's Mac Jones. So our friends at FanDuel have him at over under 4,000 yards at plus 120. I'm going over that just because of the fact that if you look at Mac last year, he was at 3,800 yards. And based on the Patriots and the schedule, 
it does feel like a lot of the wins, if they win games this year, it's not going to be the way they did last year. They're going to need Mack and that offense to put up a lot of points because the defense is going to be nowhere near elite entering the season, even though the defense technically right now ahead of the offense. But Mac Jones is going to have to be more prolific as a passer this year. So I think they go over that. All right, I did want to get to a couple of quick thoughts on the Cavaliers trade. Of course, Donovan Mitchell going to the Cavs. Of course, the big rumor was the Knicks, but he ends up with the Cavs. So first off on the Danny Ainge thing here. So it just seems like at this particular point in time, Danny Ainge is going to acquire as many draft picks as possible. He gets four first rounders and a pick swap for Rudy Gobert. And then he gets three first rounders and two pick swaps for Donovan Mitchell. So maybe he wins the lottery, gets the number one pick of the draft, the number two pick of the draft. And obviously he wants to rebuild for the long term here. But either way, Danny did sort of what he did here, where he just completely tore shit down. And if you look at Ainge, it looks like he has to be in it for the long haul now, based on all these draft picks. He's 63. You compare that to Riley, who's 77. Danny's had his issues. But it does seem like now Danny Ainge is fully committed to being in Utah long term and running that organization. So I just look at how things ended with Danny. And now I think it's abundantly clear that he was pushed out. This wasn't a situation where he wanted to step away. He was pushed out. So just to sort of summarize the Danny Ainge era, two things can be true in terms of how it ended. He did a tremendous job. He deserves probably the most credit for the Celtics getting to the finals last year in terms of the roster. He drafted Tatum. He drafted Jalen Brown. And I know he got criticized for some of his first round picks, but everybody misses on those. And he was able to get a guy like Robert Williams, who, of course, was a huge pickup for them and a massive part of why they made it to the NBA finals. So that part of it is definitely true, deserves a ton of credit. But the second part of the Danny Ainge thing, which became the narrative here locally, is also true. He would not have made a bunch of the trades that Brad Stevens ended up making, right? Does he give up Romeo Lankford, one of his draft picks, along with a situation like Richardson for Derek White? Because remember the perception there was most national people killed that trade saying that from a value perspective, Brad lost that trade, but they needed a good guard that could come in here and play well defensively and actually helped their offense. When he was on the court with the Celtics last year, they had north of a 121 rating. So he was really good for this team. And obviously, Lankford was not going to play in the playoffs. So it's a move that Brad needed to make. And I don't see Danny making that trade just because Ainge always wants to win the trade, right? And then how about the Horford situation? Danny had previously signed Kemba, of course, and I never agreed with that deal because he was a 30-year-old point guard with bad knees, had three procedures on that knee in the past. So I never liked that from the beginning. But nonetheless... Does Danny attach a pick to bring back Al Horford? I can't see that happening either. And with Al, the Celtics team really needed him. Now, Brad lucked out to some degree. They couldn't have possibly thought Al was going to be as good as he was. He defended more isolation possessions than anybody in the NBA last season, in the postseason and in the regular season, under 34 opponents field goal percentage against him in those situations. So they really needed Al. Without Al, they don't have this switch-heavy system. The Celtics were the switchiest team in the league. So I think if you injected Ainge with truth serum, he would admit that he wouldn't have made those trades. And it does seem like right now, and I kind of appreciate this, there's a little bit of fuck you to Ainge, right? He picks up Will Hardy. We chatted with Kevin O'Connor about that last week. He makes him the head coach of the team. And it doesn't seem like now Danny's stepping down anytime soon. And that narrative, which is true, that Danny wouldn't made a lot of the trades that Brad did, that narrative must piss off Danny Ainge. So now it seems he's going to be in this for the foreseeable future. He is all in with this Utah situation. And then the other portion of this real quickly is you can't like it for the C's. Now, I'm not crazy. The Celtics are the better team than the Cavaliers. I'm not arguing that whatsoever. But the Cavaliers are a more dangerous team than the Knicks would have been with Donovan Mitchell. In that deal, R.J. Barrett 
was involved. Then, of course, the Knicks signed him or that potential deal, I should say. But you look at that core, Mitchell, Garland, Mobley, Jared Allen, that's a scary group. Now, Mitchell did not play defense last year. It was embarrassing what happened against the Mavericks. He also came into training camp out of shape. But we know he can go in the postseason. He had a bunch of 50-point games in the bubble. His career, 39 postseason game, 28 points per game. So we know he can perform in the postseason. Garland was quietly one of the best isolation players in the NBA last year, ranked at the 85th percentile. So then you add them to Evan Mobley that has like Anthony Davis level upside from a defensive perspective, Jared Allen on that team as well. So it's a team the Celtics could have to deal with for an extended period of time, right? They're really young. But the other component to this is just this year. It's another team to worry about. Remember, the Celtics last year, it took them seven to beat the Bucs without Middleton. It took them seven to beat that Heat team when Lowry was fat, out of shape. Hero was banged up. Jimmy Butler was dealing with an injury. So those series were difficult for the Celtics last year. And if you look at the Eastern Conference, you assume a healthy Bucs team, a 76ers team, which James Harden is now apparently in better shape. Now, I'll believe he's good in the postseason when I see it, but that's a better team than it was a year ago with some of the additions they made. Atlanta's better, even though I don't agree with the value for the Murray trade. They're better, and this Cavaliers team is good. Miami got slightly worse just because of age, but now it does seem like last year, everything's sort of aligned for the Celtics to make it to the finals, and the road's going to be more difficult. Now, I'm still optimistic on the Celtics. I believe they win the most games in the Eastern Conference, but it does feel like this trade today for the Cavaliers adds another legitimate team at the Eastern Conference, which obviously you would not like to see as a Celtics fan. You want them to go to the Knicks, where you know that team is not going to be good because it's the Knicks. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Johnny Gomes. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, a member of the 2013 Red Sox World Series champion team, it is Johnny Gomes. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, right on. Off the Pike, huh? Pretty cool. Yeah, man, we're excited. So, hey, I want to start with this before we get into this team and the 13 team. Yep. Take you back to May, May 20th of this year. I was at that game, too, against the Mariners. Trevor Story hits the home run. You're up there on the monster. So take us through the play because you caught the grand slam. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I still uh, get uh, find my way back to Boston, whether it's an appearance here and there, whether it's to do some broadcasting, uh, 
check in a game, whatever it is. I always try and find my way back to boss as much as possible. Um, and then when I do, I uh, kind of get uh, high maintenance a little bit and I got to sit on the monster. I think those are the best seats uh, in professional sports. Uh, it's the best view. It's a unique view. Um, I mean, just imagine you're within like 10 to 15 feet. Granted, you're high of the outfielder. Um, you know, you get the bird's eye view and you're, you're right. You're right where home runs land, man. And uh, I've sat up there quite a few times. I've had a bunch go over my head. Uh, actually, the night before, as when Trevor hit three home runs, right? So his third home run, I was just shy. I was seeing like reaching over, trying to grab <laughs> that. But um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was exciting, man. I went from forty years old to eight years old, all in uh, you know 0.5 seconds. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, that was an epic night. That was an awesome Friday night at Fenway, too. Since then, it has not been great, though, Johnny, for the Red Sox. And Sam Kennedy came out this week. He said that Alex Cora and Bloom will both be coming back next season. I was kind of surprised that he lumped in Alex Cora with Bloom because I didn't feel like there was any question about Cora being back, did you? No, I mean, I mean, Cora's got a recent ring, right? Um, he was courted over and over to come back after his suspension um it seemed like the whole time he was just waiting on you know layaway while he was gone and cora has you know turned himself into you know an absolute red sock um the players listen to him uh the players respect him he knows what he's doing he's got a high baseball iq and you know you got to kind of think if you're to let go of your manager you instantly got to think like who's out there right mm -hmm. um you know, and I, I think, you know, you would want to look within uh, being the Red Sox because it's, you know, a unique market, a unique roster, all the stuff. But, um, yeah, man, if you're to let Cora go, you, you definitely would have a, a pretty deep and pretty strong backup. So I think he's the guy. Yeah, I'm with you. And I mean, if if Cora did move on, there'd be a line for the guy. I mean, if the Blue Jays lose in the postseason, they're going to say, OK, yeah, if the Cora guy's available, we'll certainly pick him up. But speaking of high and bloom, so you look at this team last year, Johnny, they're two wins away from getting to the World Series. And they had a really nice pickup in Kyle Schwarber and Hunter Renfro was good for this team as well. I mean, Renfro's up to, what, 23 bombs and on the season. Schwarber's got 36. I just wonder, like, being in that clubhouse after the run you made last year, and you really didn't come into the season with the right fielder, what do you think it was like for those guys? Just realizing, because they know in spring training, okay, we get Trevor Story, but the team is worse than last year. What's that like as a player? Yeah, well, I mean, you're obviously not banking on that leaving spring training. But, you know, one thing that Boston's known for in the offseason are big splashes. Whether it works out or it doesn't work out, they've never been lack of like trying, uh, acquiring Chris Sale, you know, even bringing in like a Hanley, bringing in, you know, a Pablo Sandoval. Uh, the year I was there, 13, bringing in a bunch of dudes. Um, it was a unique offseason of letting guys go, right? So you always want to add, add, add. So to see those big power bats leave, um, you know, I think there's kind of some questions, this and that, but is it in Heimblum we trust? Uh, you know, it's, it's tough for the Sox, but would it be known when you sign up for any Boston organization, all four major sports, if you're two games shy of winning the world series, it's not a good year. You know, it is world series, world championship or bust, you know, in, in that area up there in Massachusetts. So they're obviously not even going to playoffs. So this is going to be a long off season. And again, something the Red Sox aren't used to is a long off season. So we'll see. Um, We'll see what shakes out. 
There are some guys on the free agency market this year, but they're all extremely expensive. Yeah, that's certainly true. And speaking of free agents, I mean, you look at it too, Xander Bogarts has an opt-out, so he could potentially leave after the season. Rafael Devers is a free agent in two years. They haven't agreed to a long-term deal on him. How does that type of stuff now that the Red Sox, as you mentioned, are pretty much out of it, how does that weigh on a clubhouse, especially with Xander, who's the leader of the team? Well, you know what? So last night, Bogarts hit a grand slam in Minnesota. Uh, to make um, I think the most grand slams by a Red Sox ever, and that being six. The post game interview, man, is put, he he was like emotional, almost yeah. as if it was like a goodbye, like that's gonna be his last grand slam. And from the turnover of the Red Sox, of like the core Red Sox, right? With you know Lester gone, David Ortiz obviously retiring, Pedroia. Uh, Christian Vasquez and like now Bogarts, like, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I really think they got to find a way to keep them. And I, and I think, you know, the Red Sox is Bogarts first choice. Um, they groomed him all the way back from what, 16, 17 years old. But um, yeah, that, that was a tough interview to watch. I mean, you kind of got emotional, like, you know, it's like it, that might've been it. And it's tough to play like that. And it's tough to watch that as a fan. Yeah. And Johnny, you were his teammate, of course, when he was really young. So do you find yourself like this year? You mentioned that last night where he's real emotional. I go back to the beginning of the season right before the year started. And it almost felt like he was going to cry into the press conference because they couldn't come to an agreement on an extension. Do you almost feel bad for where Bogarts is at, especially considering how much he's meant to the organization? He really has, you know, I mean, he, he's, he came up as just a young wearing number 72 in the 2013 world series, you know, playing third kind of took over for uh, Will Middlebrooks when he got home, uh, hurt and then found his way to shortstop. There's only 30 of those in the world, major league baseball shortstops. They don't come and go. I mean, there's only, there's 30 on a given night and then there's probably eight to 10 impactful ones. Right. And he is absolutely, you know, right in the middle of all that. And then on top, now he's starting to take home, you know, these awards for whatever it's worth, but like the heart and hustle award, right? I mean, now this guy mm-hmm. has absolutely turned into a leader uh, verbally. He's turned into a leader by example. And yeah, like I said, it, it, the press conference in the beginning of the season to almost September 1st, another emotional interview by Bogarts. And that that's not really what Red Sox fans are used to. Yeah, it's unfortunate where the situation's at right now. So I got to get to the 13 team, Johnny, because 04, that team was unbelievable. 07, it was a wagon. 18, they set the record for the most wins in the history of the franchise. But that 13 team was so unique for so many different reasons. So they bring in you, they bring in Mike Napoli, they add a couple of guys to the team. But it wasn't like at the beginning of the season or in the offseason, everyone's like, all right, the Red Sox are the favorites to win the World Series. So when did you guys know that you were onto something special? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, right, right, right out of the gate, right? So, I mean, if you look back on that team, it was like, so the 2012 was the big trade to the Dodgers with the Carl mm-hmm. Crawford, the Adrian Gonzalez, you know, so on and so forth, the Beckett, the big money deal. And then, so 2013, if you look at it, it was probably like as unique as you could make a roster for like rebuilding. Like, let's go get out. Let's go get a bunch of like 30 and over free agents, which is extremely rare. But all the free agents they got, I think outside of Victorino, were hungry for a championship. The Steven Drews, the Napoli's, the Dempster, uh, myself. 
And then you look back on it like opening day, right? So you got Napoli, Pedroia, Stephen Drew, Middlebrooks, myself, uh, Ellsbury, and Shane Victorino, Saltomaki and David Ross behind the plate, Lester on the mound. I'm in the left field and I kind of scanned the whole field. I was like eight out of nine dudes in the starting uh, lineup have playoff experience. And that is exactly what you want is playoff experience. What it takes to get there, what it takes to win when you get there. So I was like, man, we'll, we'll be fine. Yeah, that, that was such a great season. And speaking of that, so at the beginning of that year, of course, we have the tragic marathon bombing and Ortiz gives the famous speech before the game. This is our fucking city. And as a fan and as somebody that grew up here, I mean, it was amazing just to hear him give that speech. You being a player and being his teammate, what was that moment like for you? Well, I mean... David Ortiz is a Hall of Famer, right? So, I mean, this guy's got multiple, multiple moments. Um, when this guy walks through the double doors, you know, at two, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, it's a moment, right? This guy's got an aura around him every time he steps up to home plate, potentially to a moment. So that really didn't shock me by any means, but, you know, I think it just really sunk in like the passion that he has for Boston, the passion that he has for the fans. and was kind of like oh boy david ortiz has a chip on his shoulder now right and that, i mean with that guy with the chip on his shoulder you know stand clear and you know he, he definitely proved it we all proved it so yeah but that that moment was pretty powerful were you surprised that in the world series it took mike Matheny until about what game four to stop pitching to ortiz i think he had like a 1900 ops in that series were you guys surprised like they kept pitching to him for that long it was kind of the like, if you don't talk about it, it's not going to happen, right? So, just, <laughs> but I mean, if you look back on it now, I mean, majority of those hits were like, oh, oh, you know, it was, I mean, it was just first pitch like heater. And it was just kind of like looking around be like, okay, you don't say anything. I'm not going to say anything and they're not going to change. Um, but yeah, man, he, he had an, an electric world series. He had an electric um, season. You know, you go back to the series before and Torrey Hunter flips over the wall with the Grand Slam on an OO pitch as well. Um, yeah, man, I mean, that's clutch. That's big poppy. That's the big moment. And, you know, he uh, he made him pay. Absolutely. Speaking of that Tigers series, so one of my favorite memories from that run for you guys is, of course, the home run from Ortiz. But then in the next game, you guys beat Verlander one to nothing. John Lackey's outstanding in that game for you guys. Do you remember the interview with Ken Rosenthal after the game? <laughs> I do. I do. Yep. And I mean, that, that that's how we were built, right? I mean, it was like Verlander, 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 this and that. As he does, you know, earn all that respect. He's one of the better pitchers. But John Lackey, man, John Lackey's a dog out there. This guy's won 10 games. He's already had a World Series in Anaheim. And I thought, you know, he was just kind of thrown to the wolves. But man, I mean, he he carved him up the whole way. And it was just that one homer by Napoli to the moon in dead center that, um, you know, was the game. And yeah, I, I remember that. And that was just kind of like how we were built and what we were all about. How shocked you, though, that that was the... So Rosenthal asked you after the game, what did you think? Right after you guys take a 2-1 series lead over the Tigers, the question that you get is, how good was Justin Verlander tonight? <laughs> how shocked are you by the question? I know they were hyping up Verlander, but were you surprised that he actually asked you that? No. I mean, that, that's what it was, all. it was. It was all the hype going into the game. It was all the hype going into the series. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we weren't having that, right? It, it was how good is John Lackey? 
right? That, that was the question. That was the interview, um, that needed to be had. And Ken Rosenthal is awesome. I love the guy. Um, but yeah, we, we had to switch, uh, switch gears real quick. <laughs> All right. What about playing with Pedroia? Because obviously it felt like the team that they built around Ortiz and Pedroia, all the guys they brought in, it was like a perfect match for him. Any good Pedroia stories from that season? Uh, yeah, th- that turned this podcast into about three hours. Uh, <laughs> every, every time you bump into Pedroia is a good story. And I mean, this guy's electric, man. I mean, this guy's got literally one thing on his mind from when he wakes up and that's winning. So I'm getting a hit. So I'm making a great play. It's winning. And, you know, we talk about there's so many winning players in the game. Um, but what are you going to do to not lose, right? Are you going to, you know, run down to first base to beat out that double play? Are you going to work a long at bat when that pitch counts at 85 in the fifth, trying to get them to a hundred? Um, what are you going to do to not lose? And that definition would be Dustin Pedroia. Yeah. And what about Lester during that run? Because I mean, from a pitching staff perspective, obviously Lackey was really good during that run, but Lester, I believe in the postseason, ended up over 34 innings. It was just a horse. What type of pitcher is he like the day of the game? Is he's the type of guy that you don't go near him or is he talkative? What's he like before his starts? Super regimented, super regimented. And, you know, game day for Lester, it it seems like he just goes out and presses play. The previous four days is absolutely exhausting, right? I mean, the homework that he does, the film work that he does, taking care of his body, his scouting reports, his lifts, his runs, his regiment, you know, I mean, by the time he gets to game five, it's like, all right, just push play. I did all my homework from right before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, this, you know, crazy tractor beam, all stuff, but, you know, the previous four days is really when he is. Um, it's tough to even track him down for a joke or a meal here or there. Cause I mean, he's on the grind, he's working. And again, you know, uh, historical postseason career that that guy had. So what's your favorite memory as a member of the Red Sox? Is it the home run against the Cardinals or what would it be for you? You know, finish the season with a victory. I sum it up as like that. Cause there's only one team that's going to do that is finish the scene with finish the season with a victory. Um, my favorite probably moment from that season was when the season was over and you find out how impactful a World Series parade is, right? So playing in front of a sold-out crowd at Fenway or you know just north of or you're right around like 40,000. How about taking a buck buck uh, duck boat tour in front of 3.2 million, right? That's when you find out how big the Red Sox are. That's when you figure out how big baseball is. That's when you figure out how many eyes have been on you all year and the impact that you had throughout that season. So that uh duck boat ride was uh, pretty impactful. So who partied the hardest after the World Series? Napoli? I mean, there's a lot of pictures of him shirtless in Boston. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. But, you know, I, I, you know, not on the defense side of it, but I mean, this guy had his heart ripped out in Texas. Yeah. Right? Twice, forget, right? Yeah, twice. This guy, you know, you talk about finish the season with a victory. This guy was out away from doing that. And back-to-back seasons had his heart ripped out. So... You know, uh, imagine the buildup that he had more than anyone else for this. So, uh, yeah, if I was him, I, I wouldn't have worn a shirt the whole offseason. So he, he definitely <laughs> deserved every uh, every moment of celebration that he had. All right, Johnny. Hey, tell us about the work you're doing with Baseball Cloud. 
Yeah, man. I mean, I'm a, you know, baseball rat, uh, you know, grinder, this and that turns into like a techie guy, uh, turns into a number guy. Um, not so much of what number is more important, not so much of what launch angle is important, but the gathering of the data, the gathering of the numbers, uh, the device that we work with, the device that we have is called Yakker Tech. Um, and I'm fully a believer in data is a new currency in baseball. And you just, you just saw it with the draft, right? Every single kid that got picked, no one got picked without data behind them. And the data now is a, basically the dollar amount that he's going to get in the draft. Now let's go to the end game. Every single player has a little cheat sheet of where to stand. And that is built on data. The catcher flips over his little card right here with the throw and win. How do they get that? They get that from data. And data is probably the most powerful tool for the instant gratification that you can have. If I was to tell you that this guy was O for his last 27 on sliders, let's throw him a slider. But what if you don't know that, right? So then you mm -hmm. don't have that edge. You don't have the performance enhancing. So baseball cloud, you know, is the ending spot for it. It's, you know, it's your own team, you know, sabermetric department, you know, it's called um, baseball cloud. And then the ball tracking device is called Yakker tech. And we're uh, dominating, you know, the amateur level and we're giving a lot of kids more exposure for the recruiting and it's powerful and i love it and another thing that you're doing too that's awesome is the home run derby x where you guys got a lot of big names nick swisher i believe yep. adrian gonzalez so tell us what that's all about when the next event is yeah we're knocking on the door we uh just did a tour of london um so it's home run derby x a uh, unique setup to where it's actually home runs just to center field. So where shortstop is and where second base is, so it's kind of like a pie or a piece of pizza. It's nothing down the line. The reason they do that is so it doesn't have to be at a baseball field. There's targets out there as well, which kind of turns it into a little top golf field. But this one's more of global and expanding the fan base of MLB, doing a big uh, logo blast all over the place. So this year we're touring London. Uh, here in September, we're going to Seoul, South Korea. Then October is Mexico City, and it's a really fun event, really fun to be a part of, um, traveling the world and hitting homers. I mean, I'm your guy for that. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, the fan engagement, I can get down with that. The same time of like educating non-baseball fans into baseball and, you know, the, the NFL is going overseas, the NBA is going overseas, the NHL obviously has tons of overseas coming over. But, you know, you look about it where baseball is. Baseball, MLB baseball is almost like the Olympics. Um, it's not like the best American-born players. I mean, there's Canada, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Dominican, on and on and on. So it's really cool to uh, travel with MLB into these really um, big populated areas and just do like an MLB blast and see how many more fans we can get. That's sweet. That's really cool. So you got to check it out. Home Run Derby X. Johnny, thanks so much. And we really appreciate it because, man, it's been a tough year from a Red Sox perspective. So we really appreciate having the ability to go down memory lane with somebody that, of course, won the World Series in 13. Thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I mean, stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Absolutely. The season's not over by any means. And, you know, this, uh, this September for the Red Sox, um, you know, it's just, it's, the last, it's a big character check, right? It's a big character check yeah. to see who checks out, 
to see who grinds. And, you know, it, it's tough to play the spoiler. You never want to play the spoiler. But if you play that spoiler hard enough, you're going to find yourself like right, right in the mix. And, um, you know, the first place team, obviously, as you walk in the front door, but it's okay to go in the back door too, you know, to get into that wild card game. So that's not off the, off the table by any means. I'm with you. Beat up on the Yankees a little bit. Beat up on the, see if you can beat up on the Jays because they've had your number. Johnny, thanks so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. All right, guys, be good. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, so I did want to get to this because really since 2017, there's been a lot of aggravating things that have happened here locally. Now, I understand the Red Sox won a championship, the Patriots won the Super Bowl, et cetera, but I wanted to get to the 10 most aggravating events that have happened since the start of 2017. So number 10 is a recent one. That is Schwarber and Renfro, both not with the Red Sox entering the season. So I don't understand how you don't bring either one of these guys back. 59 combined home runs with those two players. The Red Sox are 19th in home runs in Major League Baseball, and 59 home runs went out the door. Like, okay, if you don't want to bring back Schwarber, I disagree with that logic. They were $30 million off in terms of the contract the Phillies offered Schwarber, so obviously he was going to leave. But you voluntarily traded Hunter Renfro, and you did nothing in terms of getting an actual right fielder. So you spent the whole season until the trading deadline without a major league outfielder and Tommy Pham, you only had two major league outfielders because Jackie Bradley Jr. can't hit. So that was incredibly infuriating because of where this team was at a year ago, two wins away from the World Series. Number nine on the list in terms of the 10 most aggravating events since the start of 17 is Gordon Hayward. Now, this is nothing against Gordon. This is not an indictment on Gordon Hayward, but we never got to see the real Gordon Hayward. Five minutes into his career as a member of the Celtics, he goes down with that gruesome, ugly, broken leg. It just sucked. It was unfortunate. And the problem for Hayward was this. Remember, it kind of caused some controversy. His first year back, some of the younger guys were upset that he was getting playing time over them. And the offense actually always functioned better with Hayward on the court, right? Because he was a really good facilitator, if you will. But he just never really fit here because what happened in his time when he got injured, Tatum and Jalen Brown sort of passed him on the pecking order. So unfortunately, we never got to see the good Gordon Hayward in a Celtics uniform. He was good, but we never got to see what we thought Hayward would be in a Celtics uniform. All right, number eight, the most aggravating things that have happened since 2017, the sale contract. This one made no sense. So sale was given a five-year, $145 million deal prior to the 19 season. So that deal starts in 2020 because sale still was under contract in 19. In 2020, or I should say since the start of 2020, Sale, 11 starts, 48 and a third. That's it. That's all he's pitched on the new contract. 11 starts. So $90 million since the start of 2020. So that's basically $8.9 million per start. And some of that is a little bit different in terms of the actual money just because of the COVID situation. But you get the point. 11 starts in three years. And remember, the big thing here is you didn't have to sign him when you did, right? 
because in 18, the World Series year, he was shut down for a month with shoulder inflammation. He was not a big factor in the playoff run. He missed a start against the Astros. And then he was supposed to start the game that he closed against the Dodgers, where he famously struck out Manny Machado. So you didn't get much from him in the postseason. In 17, he wore down at the end of the year. Now, this was just from a numbers perspective, 409 ERA in his last 11 starts, and the Astros kicked his ass twice in the postseason. So you could have let him play it out in 19 and then revisit it at the end of the season because it was predictable that he was going to break down. But the problem for the Red Sox is they got caught up in the PR aspect of it because they botched the John Lester situation. So they overcompensated with sale. And what they got was a guy that's made 11 starts. And the problem is you like the guy, but you just know he's never going to be healthy. It's Tommy John. It's this year he has a slow start and then he gets the mangled finger and then he falls off the bike. The problem is we get so excited to see Chris Sale, but you know, in the back of your head, it's just never going to work out long term. The guy's completely snake bitten. Number seven is the turnovers in the NBA finals in terms of the most aggravating storylines since 17. So the Warriors are a better team than the Celtics. I mean, a lot of us thought the Celtics would win the series entering it, but the Warriors are better. They all played them. But what you couldn't live with was the Celtics turned the ball over on 17.6% of their possessions in that series, okay? The Rockets this season were dead last in the NBA at 16.2, and the Celtics were at 17.6% of the finals. Tatum didn't show up for a good portion of that series. Final three games, six turnovers, four turnovers, five turnovers. And the thing that irritated you about Tatum, just a no-show for game six, six of 18, 13 points. Okay, so the Tatum fall off, The turnovers, Jalen, he shot the ball well at times, but last two games, 10 turnovers. So I just look at it too, like the game five against when Curry just went ice cold. Remember, he was 0 of 9 from three, and he was 7 for 22 from the field. He just completely sucked. Wiggins had 28, but again, it was the turnovers. 22 Warriors points off turnovers compared to the Celtics had nine off the Warriors turnovers. So the big thing that irritated you about that, you can list a young team, you can live with losing to the Warriors. Steph Curry, arguably the second best player of his generation behind LeBron. He's got the four championships now, two-time MVP. You can live with that, but it's just how they did it. It's all the turnovers. That's what really sucked about that. Number six, the most aggravating storyline since the start of 17, the COVID season for the Bruins. So the Bruins were the best team at the NHL pre-COVID. And quite frankly, it shocked me. I thought that team was going to be done after they lost to the Blues in the Stanley Cup final. But the layoffs screwed them, right? They weren't the same team coming back. It was an older core. So they had to gear up again for essentially another season almost. So that was going to take them longer than some of the younger teams. And then you had the Tuca situation. Remember, he leaves the bubble for a family matter. I don't want to get into great detail about that. But you understand he left the bubble. Even before that, he wasn't ready to go. Remember, he was deemed unfit to play the first game in the bubble in the round robin. Tuca called the round robin not real hockey. And then in the Carolina series, he said, to be honest, it doesn't really feel like playoff hockey out here. So he wasn't in it. We know something was going on at home. So then Halak fills in for Tuca. You try to rally around Halak, but Halak's not as good as Tuca, and he just couldn't get it done. And remember, Pasternak in that situation, he violated the COVID rules. He was working out with guys at like Hockey Town or something, non-NHLers. So he didn't get the ramp up to training camp. He ends up with a lower body injury. He's not the same guy in the postseason. So you really do wonder, and I know you could say this about a lot of things, but if the seasons never stop for the Bruins, does that team win the Stanley Cup? It's a legitimate question. Number five is Kyrie's existence. Hey, this one to me is just, I don't know how you narrow it down. He says, if you guys will have me back, I plan on resigning here to the season ticket holders. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. Then he says, ask me on July 1st about my free agency a couple of months later. 
He said about the young guys, quote, the young guys don't know what it takes to be a championship level team, what it takes every day. And if they think it's hard now, what do they think it'll be like when we're trying to get to the finals? <laughs> I mean, he was unbelievable. He gets caught saying two max contracts to Kevin Durant. The Bucks series, he's waving guys off to cover Giannis. The guy doesn't play defense all year. Then he wants to cover Giannis. He had nine points in one of those games. He shot 35.6% from the field. Like, I can laugh about it now because they just made it to the finals. They have Tatum and they have Brown. They're in a really good position with Ime Adoka and all this. But man, that Kyrie thing was just incredible. Number four, the most aggravating storyline since 17, Nikhil Harry, that draft pick. You passed on A.J. Brown. You passed on Debo Samuel. Debo Samuel on Instagram said, hey, Billy, we'll see you in a month. A.J. Brown wanted to be here. He was a Patriots fan. Bill, remember, the reporting is he ignored his scouts and he went with Nikhil Harry because he had a relationship with not the current college coach, Herm Edwards, the previous college coach, Todd Graham, who had been fired from the job. And you really think about this. Now, this is going down a rabbit hole here. But what if A.J. Brown or Debo Samuel is on the Patriots? Or Debo Samuel, rather. If they were on the Patriots, does Tom Brady leave? Because these guys are thoroughbreds, right? They're unbelievable players. So Tom in 19 could say, yeah, I'm leaving because the roster sucks. Ordinarily, that wouldn't be the case. If Debo or A.J. Brown was here, and we know the relationship was bad between Belichick and Brady, But maybe that keeps Tom here knowing he has an elite wide receiver. All right, number three, losing to the Blues in 19. The Bruins caught a break, remember? The Lightning got upset by the Blue Jackets. The Capitals that season got knocked out by Carolina. And then you had Pittsburgh got knocked out. Those are the teams you were worried about. So you have an easy path to the cup. And the Bruins deserve that. I mean, they won their series. The other teams didn't. I'm not taking that away from them. But game seven, remember, they pepper Jordan Bennington in the first period. They can't get anything by him. And then instead, the Blues go into the first intermission at the Garden with a 2-0 lead. And you had that bad change from Brad Marchand that led to the second goal. It was just an ugly performance. That series, Tuca never stole you a game. Bennington did for St. Louis. The perfection line was not good. Bergeron, minus four with his four points in that series. Pasternak was a minus seven with four points. Marchand, minus two with five points. And Ryan O'Reilly outplayed Bergeron, which we didn't see that one coming. And it just felt like With that core, that would have put them in a different stratosphere if they won the second cup, right? Because you think about that era, the Penguins with Mulkin and Crosby won three, even the Kings won two, the Blackhawks won three, and the Bruins, and recently the Lightning won back-to-back. The Bruins never got that second one. We know what happened in 13, the two goals at the end there against Tuca, but this team had a real opportunity to sort of separate itself from the 08 Celtics who won the one championship and they act like they won 45 championships. But this Bruins team really had an opportunity twice to win the Stanley Cup final. 13, the Blackhawks were the better team. In 19, they were the better team and they didn't get it done. And remember, Chara in that series comes back from a broken jaw and the Bruins lost that game. Number two is the Butler benching in terms of the most aggravating storylines from 17. That one really sucked. Because the Eagles put up 538 yards of offense. Remember, Nick Foles, 373 yards. Tom Brady had 505 yards and three touchdowns. And he lost the game. 
<laughs> the Patriots lost the game. I mean, that one to me is like, at some point, just put them in the game, Bill. I, I don't know. We still will never know what's going on. Everybody thinks they know exactly what happened. We will never know what happened. You could argue that Butler just got hush money. He got put in the IR and he got paid. They came to a settlement. So he's not going to say anything. He would have already said any, something by now. He signed that huge contract with the Titans. He's never said anything. And he came back. And then Brady's out here saying, I wish he would have played, but coach didn't play him. We still had a chance to win. He also told Malcolm Butler, I don't know what defense we'd be in where you're not out here. So, and that one was, oh, that would have been Brady coming off the 28 to three comeback than that one. And you didn't even play Malcolm Butler. I'll go to my grave believing the Patriots win that game if they just put Butler in the game. And maybe forgot how to stop Nick Foles. That would have been nice too. And that was Patricia's final game here. And then thankfully Flores took over the defense. Now Patricia's running the offense, which should go great. Last but not least, the most aggravating storyline since 17, the Mookie trade. This is by far the worst because the Patriots won a Super Bowl in 18, right? And you just look at the Mookie situation. I understand the argument for trading Mookie, right? If you say, okay, he was never going to agree to a contract. But what I just cannot get around is he's one of the best players in the fucking game and the return is just unacceptable. You got Verdugo, Downs, and Wong. Jeter Downs is terrible. He's never going to be an everyday major league player. Wong is just getting an opportunity here. Got called up, but he's a 26-year-old catcher and all likelihood profiles as a backup guy. Verdugo is hot right now. He's a backup, or I should say he's an everyday player, but he's not somebody that's going to be a perennial all-star. So if you just look at the difference in war, Mookie 12.6 wins above replacement since he left. And if you subtract that to Verdugo, Downs, and Wong, it's a 7.5 wins above replacement difference. The only player in Major League Baseball over seven this year is Aaron Judge. That's the difference in the trade. And you could say, well, you're trading Mookie. Yeah, but you're supposed to get something back in return for Mookie bets. And this, to me, is why I don't trust Bloom at all. How can you trust Bloom to make major moves when this is the return that he got for Mookie bets? All Mookie has done is won a World Series, won another gold glove, won another silver slugger, and Mookie Betts is 27 defensive runs saved in the outfield since he left. He's one of the premier outfielders in the game. The Red Sox are a team, or as a team, are at 18. So it's just an unforgivable trade. And really, if you think about it from High Bloom's perspective, based on the return, he would have been better just saying, hey, Mookie, play in 2020, then we'll try to sign you. And then if Mookie really does go somewhere else, you could actually come to grips with the fact that, oh, Mookie really didn't want to be here. You could actually convince yourself of that. But now it's like, oh, my God. Imagine if he has to trade another superstar. What's this guy going to get back in return? Like any good team should be calling up Heim Bloom based on that return. All right, we'll be back on Sunday, a week away from the Patriots opener. And as always, we didn't have time tonight because we just we had to get through that list. The top 10 most aggravating storylines since the start of 17. So if you want to leave a voicemail, 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. If you want to react to something that has happened during the preseason, getting ready for the season, all that on the table at 617-396-7172. All right, thanks so much to Jonathan Kerma and Steve Srudi for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th, 
and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.